You're listening to Pros Like Us, brought to you by NFL Draft Blitz. And now, without any further ado, here's Alex and Lou. All right, we are back, gang, with Pros Like Us. I'm Lou, that's Alex. We're hopefully better than we were last week. Always looking to improve. Alex, how you doing? Doing well, Lou. Another fun week of NFL football and ready to uh, recap those games and talk about some fun topics. Absolutely. Uh, well, and I think you know it's probably been talked about a lot out there in the media, but I mean, I don't think we can talk about it enough. I mean, because going into the game, the Bucks were looking like, you know, this is going to be the best team in the AFC. They've added an Antonio Brown, and then, I don't know, I mean, it was almost like a Tyson fight, right? Tyson once famously said that you, everybody's got a plan until you get hit in the mouth, but I'm not sure that Tampa Bay really had a plan. I mean, they just came out chucking the ball, and it, I, I don't know. I was just – that it completely threw me. Not that the Saints won, but that they just absolutely crushed them. Like, they had no clue what they wanted to do. I mean, what was your take? If the Saints play the Bucks every week, they would be 16-0 and 0 <laughs> and in the Super Bowl. I mean, they, they seem to have the Bucks number, especially this year, because the Bucks are playing well against everybody else, but – the, the Saints are giving him trouble. I'm sure we'll see this matchup in the playoffs again. According to Bovada Sportsbook, the, the Saints are minus nine at home versus the 49ers. That's the next game coming up in, on Sunday. But let's get back to the Bucks. You know, it's almost funny. Like, on the first drive, Breeze almost threw a pick in the red zone. And Jason Pierre-Paul dropped it. Imagine if Pierre-Paul comes up with that pick. The, the swing of the momentum, that the, the shift of the game, I think it would be completely different. Obviously, the Saints turned around and, and they scored the touchdown. I also felt like the Saints' defense stepped up, especially in the second half. I mean, Brady threw three picks. They stopped the running game. Jones and Fournette weren't able to get it going. They used Taysom Hill really well during this game. Let's not forget, Lou, they haven't had Michael Thomas. And Michael Thomas was back, catching passes, those slant routes that he runs so well. And he was just the security blanket for Drew Brees. Um, So they had those weapons. If the Saints are healthy, that's a dangerous team. They're gelling together, and I like what I'm seeing out of them. Yeah, well, with Michael Thomas, and here's the difference. I mean, Michael Thomas, who's obviously has been there for years, top receiver in the league, comes back. They didn't force feed him the ball. The Saints know who they are. Drew Brees knows his game. I mean, he sp- he just sprays it around around the field. And as long as he's protected, he's going to do well. And for all these people that are still trying to you know bury Drew Brees because he's not throwing the deep ball, that's not really their game. They're going to take their shots. But I mean, Mike, like you mentioned, Taysom Hill, but Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, getting it to Kamara, you know, anybody and any. I mean, you see somebody Adam Trout and he catches a touchdown past. I mean, just guys you never even heard of, and, but, but they're open, so he gets them the ball. Whereas Tampa Bay, they still, I don't think, know who they are. And then on top of that, you've got two great receivers, and we talked about A.B. and how he could be a compliment, but it seemed like we're going to bring him in. He's had two practices. We're just going to we're just going to force him the ball. We're we're going deep. We're going. To, I mean, they were miscommunicated on an interception or two. I don't know what what they were doing. I don't know what their plan was. I think they they had like six run runs for the whole game. Now, obviously, the score got away from them, so they're not going to be able to run the ball much. But man, they just looked really, really. No identity, nothing. I don't know what they're going to be going forward, but hopefully Mike Evans is a much bigger part of it. They don't force it to A.B. I mean, they still have Chris Godwin, Gronk, you know, come on. So anyway, but like you said, the the big thing I think was New Orleans' defense where it was so good the last couple of years, you're really starting to think, well, why isn't their defense that great this year? 
you know, they added Malcolm Jenkins, kind of that calming influence in the back, kind of the, the quarterback of the defense. But, you know, as we start getting through, get, getting closer and closer to Thanksgiving, getting into the end of November, December, if this team, the defense starts to get better and better each week, Breeze is going to keep doing what he's doing. Yeah, this could be a, a pretty significant team in the NFC, if not the best team in the NFC. That's what surprised me. I mean, I, I knew that the Saints were pretty good in the secondary, that they can possibly limit some of those big plays, and they did. But the surprise for me was the pass rush. The pass rush was getting to Brady. Maybe it's because, you know, I, I think I've praised the Bucks' offensive line in the past. I thought they've played well, but against the Saints, they just struggled. So I think it was both of those things. I mean, the Saints' defense was getting pressure, and the Bucks weren't able to... Um, to keep Brady you know, clean in the pocket, which you need to do. But I'm impressed. And don't write off the Saints because they certainly are in the conversation. They are a top three, top five team moving forward after this win against the Bucks on Sunday. Interesting to see how the Bucks do this week uh, at Carolina. No Christian McCaffrey got hurt in the Chiefs game. Interesting because they're going on the road, and anyway, hopefully they can get things going and not force feed AB so much. Well, you know what they have to do: get rid of AB now that they lost the game, right? <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, hopefully they work him in at a much more relaxed pace and not again just try to force him in there. As the college season has uh, progressed a little bit, I know this is a pro show, and it is a pro topic. What do you make of Michigan? they got a coach up there, used to coach in the NFL, did a real good job with it, and now lost to a rebuilding Michigan State team at home. They go on the road and get beat by Indiana. I don't know what's going on in Michigan, but i got to believe the whispers around Jim Harbaugh coming back to the uh, NFL – have got to be getting louder and louder. I mean, they're not nearly in the class of Ohio State, not even close. At what point do they do they pull the plug, or what point does Harbaugh say, hey, you've got Jacksonville, you've got Houston, you've got the Jets, maybe Detroit, Atlanta, long shot Chicago. He's got some ties there. Obviously, he played there. But uh, what do you make of Harbaugh? What's going on there? I think Michigan is going to pull the plug because I think they expected a Big Ten championship. They expected Michigan to compete with Ohio State and at least beat them once every three years. And they expected a national championship because Harbaugh brought pedigree from the NFL. He was coming home. He was supposed to be that savior, and he hasn't been. And I think he is realizing it, and they're realizing it, and I think they're going to part ways at the end of the season, and that's why I pose this question. I mean, which NFL teams would be the best fits for him uh, moving forward? Because I think once he gets fired from Michigan, he's going to be looking forward to the NFL again. He had success there, Lou, with the 49ers. He led them to the Super Bowl. Yes, they lost against the Ravens, but... He looked pretty damn good doing it. He wears thin on people, like after three or four years. Harbaugh is one of those guys that needs to change places. If you haven't won in Michigan, you have to move on. And I just, I believe that the NFL is his next stop. So I want to pose this question to you. Which team is the best landing spot for him in the NFL? Well, I mentioned a few teams, a couple that still have their current coaches, so we're not, you know, Detroit, Chicago, who knows what's going to happen in those organizations. But we know Jacksonville, Houston, the Jets, Atlanta. I mean, any one of those jobs, I think Atlanta probably would give you the easiest route to have success immediately because you've got some established stars there. But by the same token, if they keep playing the way they are, maybe they keep winning some games. Maybe Raheem Morris gets a shot there. I mean, he's, what, 10, 12 years removed from his last uh, head coaching job. Jacksonville seems to be the one that I think he would tend to lead towards. They're going to have high draft pick. I think they've got some decent draft capital. There are some, some players to work, some young defensive players to work with there. They bring in a new quarterback. Maybe they get this you know second or third pick. Justin Fields, somebody to come in and be the, the quarterback that he grooms into high-class starter in the NFL. I would think 
Jacksonville might be the best spot for him. I'm going to go with Detroit. I think the Falcons are a good landing spot for him, and I think that job is going to be open. I would want to go to that offense that has Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, and and established one of the better quarterbacks in the league in Matt Ryan. And I think Harbaugh can bring that physicality, tough, hard-nosed football to the defensive side of the ball. But I think Detroit, that spot is going to open up. Matt Patricia is going to get axed at the end of the season. And I wouldn't want to go there. I mean, I've got Matthew Stafford. I think I've got some pieces to work with on defense. That team is not as bad as their record makes them out to be. And I just think that he played for the Chicago Bears. But I think, I mean, Harbaugh doesn't care who he goes to. I mean, just as long as they, you know, give him a good salary. I mean, I think he will go anywhere. But I think Atlanta and Detroit, I think those are the two best landing spots for him because... They've got some established veterans at the quarterback position, and that's half of the battle in this league. And I don't think Harbaugh is looking for that total rebuild. I don't think he wants to go to the Jets. I don't think he would fit in there with Joe Douglas as the GM. Um, I don't think he would go to Jacksonville. I don't think he would go you know, somewhere else. A team that's looking to rebuild completely for the next two or three years. I think Harbaugh wants to come in and improve in year one. And I just think Detroit and Atlanta give him that opportunity. From his perspective, yes. I think from the team's perspective, though, my uh, concern with Detroit is the proximity to Ann Arbor and just the, I guess, the, the Ford family. And I think a, a lot of what I don't, I don't know if that's if that's going to be a, a fit for them. You know, for him, from his perspective, any one of them, I think he can do well in. Uh, I mean, obviously, Houston would would probably be a good job too. You know, you've got uh, you know Deshaun Watson. You've got you got some. Players on the defensive side of the ball, maybe not the best, but, you know, again, but again, anyone I think would be good from his perspective. I just think from the team's perspective, I think Detroit might not be such a great fit PR-wise. No, it remains to be seen. I, I just feel like, you know, Jacksonville with the high draft pick, I don't know. It just seems like he, he, it, that would be more of a challenge for him, and that, that would be my favorite at this point. So moving on. Uh, we talk about a lot of stars. Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody likes to talk about the stars in the NFL. We're going to focus on today, just for a few minutes, is maybe about three three players each that we've selected that are kind of unsung, underappreciated players in the NFL that uh, don't get the notoriety, but definitely are very important to their respective teams. My first one, and I, yeah, I'm going to be accused of being a homer, and yes, I am, so, but... I'm going to say Dirty Dan Sorensen, defensive back for the Chiefs. Uh, Safety, nickel linebacker, kind of of jack-of-all-trades, plays still some on special teams. He just makes plays. He's not the fastest guy. He's not the strongest guy. He's not really the est any guy, but he just is a very smart guy. He's in the right position and makes huge plays for the Chiefs, game-ending interceptions. I mean, going back to that playoff game against Houston where uh, the Chiefs had just, I think they had just scored, I can't remember if the score was 24-7 or 24-14. Momentum was kind of shifting, and if you remember, Houston decides in their own end of the field to go fake punch, short snap, and it looks like it's wide, is going to break wide open. And Sorensen kind of read the play. If you go back and look at it beforehand, kind of smelled it out, tackles the guy for a loss. The Chiefs keep scoring, and the rest is history. But I guess that's just one play. But just I get to I watch these guys every single week for I don't know how many years now. But just watching him play, he dirty Dan. That's 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 a good dude. That's uh, somebody you like to have it on your team. He's kind of the glue back there. Yeah, he's learned well from from the Honey Badger. I'm going to go with the player that is a little bit more established, and but I don't think he's ever reached that star status. I think he's one of the most underappreciated players in the NFL in his era. That's Levante David. To me, he's the epitome of a complete linebacker. He makes so many big plays. I mean, this guy has had seven 100-plus tackle seasons. He's in his ninth season right now. 
second. But he's never mentioned with the other star linebackers. He's always getting snubbed from the Pro Bowl. He always seems to rise to the challenge, whether he's forcing a fumble or coming up with the pick or coming up with the tackle for loss or coming with that key tackle on third down to, to get that stop. I don't think this player is ever going to get into the Pro Bowl Hall of Fame, but he should based on his play. It's, always, it's a shame that he never gets mentioned with the great linebackers because he certainly plays like it. And he's more of a star, Lou, I give you that, than Daniel Sorensen. But that's Levante David is extremely underrated. And this week, obviously, the Bucks are hoping to bounce back. And Bovada has the Bucks as a five-and-a-half-point favorite versus the Panthers. Let's go with your second. Okay, I went re- I went a little bit deeper than you did, <laughs> so I'll have to admit. So uh, my next guy, actually, you mentioned him in, at at the top with the Saints and uh, Taysom Hill. Uh, he's never going to make a Pro Bowl because he, you know, he doesn't really have a position. Now, granted, Drew Brees may retire after this year. Uh, maybe they give uh, give him a shot at quarterback. They seem to like him, or at least that's the talk was going into this year before Drew Brees made his decision. Coach Payton said over and over again, "Yeah, we see him as a as a long term quarterback." So, yeah, I don't I don't buy that at all. But he plays quarterback, he plays tight end, he plays like H back, wide receiver. He's on special teams. You see him catching passes. You see him running the wildcat. You see him throwing passes. Directs. I mean, he does everything. A little bit of everything for this Saints team. He's a tough guy, but he's not. I don't think he's good enough at any one of those positions to be a star at any of them, but he's good enough to make plays when they need him, and he's kind of, a, like, like I said, he's, he's like a joker-type position because you don't know where he's going to be, what he's going to do when he's on the field, but he's able to do a little bit of everything. So Taysom Hill, I'll put him in this class. He's a jack-of-all-trades, and I think the Saints have made it known that they prefer him over Teddy B, and that's why Teddy B has moved on. We'll see what happens with Winston, right, Taysom Hill and Winston, but I'm sure the Saints believe that Taysom Hill is their quarterback of the future, especially where the NFL is is moving in today's game. You're right. I mean, you're going with like guys a little bit more off the radar than I am, and I guess I'm. That's okay. We don't want we don't want the same. Appreciated. We don't want to have the same list. We both have a different point of view. That's all right. I'm going to go with Allen Robinson, a wide receiver who's who's played for the Jags, and now he is playing for the Bears. Um, his numbers look pretty darn good. Uh, 412 receptions for nearly 5,500 receiving yards and 36 touchdowns. But when you consider the quarterbacks that he's had during his career, Blake Bortles with the Jags, he had Mitchell Trubisky and now Nick Foles with the Bears. He only made the Pro Bowl in 2015. He should have made it last year. You know, he was part of that great draft where Mike Evans, OBJ, Jarvis Landry, Sammy Watkins, that that draft, probably the, the greatest wide receiver draft of all time. And this guy, again, is never in the same conversation as those guys. Those guys are stars, and Allen Robinson is putting up those numbers, and he should be there again, but he's not. That's the reason why I'm putting... Allen Robinson in this category as well. Again, the numbers are there. He's been to the Pro Bowl once and probably will get there again. And he's putting up the numbers this year, despite the Bears having a horrible offense. But I do believe Allen Robinson deserves to be on this list. Absolutely. I like his game a lot. Uh, And to that end, I mean, that's my third player. is going to be, I mean, not quite as good, but I think he's kind of in that class. There are so many wide receivers that are they're better, they come into the league ready to play or at an early age. There's so many, so we're always looking for the next big thing. There's so many, like you said, they, they put up those numbers and some of these guys get lost. Well, my guy is Robert Woods of the Rams. He got drafted by Buffalo, right? He's there with Sammy Watkins, gets traded to the Rams, and Sammy Watkins comes in there. And eventually, obviously, Sammy left. They bring in Brandon Cooks. Brandon Cooks is there for a bit. He leaves. 
But all the while, Robert Woods is kind of doing his thing almost in anonymity. I mean, if you ask people right now who the Rams' number one wide receiver is, I think you you might get a lot of Cooper Cups. But on the West Coast, you're going to hear a lot more Robert Woods because he was such a great player at USC. But the last three years, I mean, the 80, 90 catches, over 1,000 yards. They hit him on jet sweeps at least 15 to 20 times a year. They've already He's already had 16 rushing attempts. This year, 100-some yards, two touchdowns. He's got over 400 yards receiving, four touchdowns. So, And he's an intricate part of what the Rams do with the jet sweeps and a lot of the play action. So I like Robert Woods in there. Is Again, probably not going to see him in any Pro Bowls. Not going to see him with any endorsements. Maybe some local ones in L.A., I don't know. But uh, Robert Woods is on my list. I thought about Robert Woods because I think he is – extremely underrated just all across the league and he puts up numbers he did it with the with the bills and he's doing it with the rams and he's clearly the the number one receiver for the rams right now and i just that, that's a great one uh, my last guy is justin simmons free safety of the denver broncos another guy that just never gets mentioned with the top safeties but should uh, he has started 56 straight games 338 total tackles, 14 interceptions. He brings size, athleticism, very good ball skills. When people talk about Denver Broncos defense, it always starts and stops with Von Miller. But Justin Simmons has become one of the big-time players for this defense as well and should be mentioned as one of the stars. Uh, The Broncos placed a franchise tag on him. I'm curious to see whether he gets a long-term deal from Denver, but... If I was the GM, I would give it to him just because he's an intricate part of that team and of that defense. Yeah, I watch a lot of AFC West in case anybody was uh, wondering. And, yeah, absolutely, he should be a, he should be on any one of these lists. Uh, you know, I obviously had a bunch that I, that I left off, but Justin Simmons, yeah, he's definitely a great player. And speaking to the AFC West, don't look now, but the Las Vegas Raiders are winning some games. Coming off a couple of wins, actually. These teams in the AFC West obviously get, get lost in the shuffle. It's hard for me to talk about without sounding so biased. But, you know, with the Chiefs in that division, you really don't hear much about the Raiders, about the Broncos, about the Chargers. The Chargers a little bit because Justin Herbert's playing so well. But they've only won two games, five and three at this point. They're getting more and more uh, comfortable with, with, I guess, the, the way their, their team plays. Mike Mayock has really done a great job of bringing in talent. Uh, he took some heat for his uh, high, high pick. Uh, it was the number four pick, one of, the, one of those kids from Clemson, one of the defensive linemen. Which one was that? Cleland Farrell. Cleland Farrell. Right. And he took some heat for that. I mean, he's, I don't know that he's going to be a great player, but I think he's the type of player that they're looking for and they're trying to build with. So that's, you know, where the whole value thing comes in, you know, the, the play on the field versus what he can do inside the locker room and so forth. The defense still is a bit susceptible to big plays, and they do give up their share. But uh, Derek Carr seems to have kind of found his groove in this Gruden offense. Not that he has to put up huge numbers. They can just smash you with that offense, huge offensive line, Josh Jacobs, and they play action pass. I think the last game, Carr only threw like 20 passes, 22 passes. He's also taken shots down the field, which in the past he was really criticized for, and I think Gruden was really starting to get a little irked about that he wasn't taking shots but you throw in rugs you throw in Nelson Aguilar has refound himself with the Raiders and they look like a team that if they stick to their identity great offensive line play action pass try to keep that defense protected by winning the time of possession that you know they can they can make the playoffs with that extra team in the playoffs this year. I think they got a chance to to uh, be that sixth or seventh team. I agree with everything you said you know, when it comes to the Raiders and their offense. That offense is clicking. They have an identity where they run the football with Josh Jacobs and Derek Carr takes care of the football. He only has two picks this year. This is arguably his best season 
as a pro, and he definitely feels a lot more comfortable under John Gruden. Their schedule is favorable when you look at it the rest of the way. But that defense stinks, Lou. Yes. I mean, they're I don't struggling. watch the Raiders. I mean, you're being kind when well, you say that they're susceptible to big – they stink. They really do. I mean, their third down defense was horrible against the Chargers in key situations, blown coverages. If it wasn't for the Chargers continuing to just blow leads, they they would take that game. The lack of sacks, they don't force takeaways. They just allow way too many points on defense. And I thought maybe they would move on from their defensive coordinator, Gunther, but they haven't. They, they've stayed loyal to him. They have to make a change because, you know, in this league, I mean, we're talking about Gruden was brought in to get the Raiders back in the playoffs and eventually win the Super Bowl. And that's what Mike Mayock was brought in as well. With that defense, they're not going to go far. I agree with you. They're going to get in the playoffs as that sixth or seventh seed, but I just don't see them advancing past the first round. And this week, uh, Bovada has Las Vegas Raiders as a four-and-a-half-point favorite against the Broncos. But I don't think they have the players on the defensive side of the ball. So it's just going to be a one-and-done type of thing. And I wanted to ask you this question really quickly. Do you think John Gruden is one of the more overrated head coaches of his time? You know, it's hard to say because he's got such a huge persona. If, if likable is is the proper term or just he relates, I think his time in the booth really helped him in his coaching. Winning a Super Bowl, I think, I don't know, for, for better or worse, tends to give... A lot of coaches, the, you're in the club for them. It's like the green jacket in the, in the, at the Masters who they're playing. They're playing this weekend. Is like once you're in the club, you're in. That's it. But I do agree with you that perhaps we are a little overstating, you know, what what he's been able to accomplish. Let's see what he does in this version of his tenure with with the Raiders, and maybe he can kind of get himself back to that level, but I, you know, it's it's hard to say. I, mean, I, I just like the guy a lot, so it's hard for me to say that, you know, he's not as good as, as, as his reputation may lead you to believe, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I think the persona really uh, overshadows things. Joining us now is a former NFL player. Quite the football life he has going on so far. He was all SEC for a couple of years, all American one year. Uh, third round pick of the Chicago Bears, played in the Super Bowl with the Bears, spent a couple of years also at the end of his career with Detroit and also New Orleans, uh, has gone on to uh, do some coaching at certain levels, recently moved to Las Vegas, and oh, by the way, one of his kids is a pretty decent player. Uh, welcome to the show, Terrence Metcalf. Terrence, how you doing? Lou, thank you uh, for having me, man. Doing well. That's great. That's great. Well, we talked a little bit off air there that you moved to Las Vegas. How's that going? It's going really well, man. You know, with with all circumstances, with the pandemic and stuff like that. But uh, you know, it's always been been a dream of, of ours as a family to to be out here on the West Coast. And uh, so, like you said, that son of mine, that Decayman uh, Metcalf, he was drafted to the West Coast, and so it just made it easier for us to just go ahead on and make this leap. Now, did you did you mention his given name there? Oh yeah, yeah. We as a family, we don't we don't say DK. That's a name that was given to him during Pee Wee, so we call him Decaylin. Decaylin, okay. All right. I had no idea. I had no idea. I, I was gonna. That was gonna be one of yeah. my questions. You know, if that was just like a secret or something, he just prefers DK. Um, I think it's just uh, kind of like when I was playing, my given name people never called me Terrence. They either called me Metcalf or they called me Big Cat. So you know, within the football realm, you develop those little. A little little things like that, what people will do, and that's what you live by, and that's what you just stick to as a as a player. Uh, but definitely, when he's with the family, it's always the Kaylin. All right, I got you there. I I, I feel you. You did a little bit of coaching at some point at Pro River Community College. Uh, what what made you want to coach, Terrence? What uh, what led you in that direction? Well, coming out of the NFL, my I went into uh, the, what my background was was uh, human resource management and marketing. And I did a sports talk radio while DeKalen was young, while my kids were young and, and that adolescent age and that they continue to get older, that 
that Kayla uh, got interested in football. So I'm waking up every morning, doing a morning radio show, printing the magazine, uh, covering recruiting, and then in the afternoon from 3 o'clock to 9 o'clock at night, I'm coaching either the Kalen and his teammates or or some uh, variation of that. And I just kind of progressed with him from peewee to middle school to high school. And then after that, once we went to Ole Miss, I just had that itch for coaching. I felt like I could impact kids' lives from a mentoring standpoint and the knowledge that I had gained as a football player. I definitely knew that I had skills to develop an individual. Man, I just fell for fell in love with it, and, and that itch came on, and uh, just continued with it all the way through. And my opportunity came uh, at Pearl River Community College down on the coast of Mississippi, and so I jumped on that opportunity. What would, would you say that was the most rewarding part? Is impacting young people? Oh, most definitely, man. Just uh, and and not only young people, but once uh, your own child takes an interest in and in what you love to do, God has blessed you to go through every phase of it, and you got the uh, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom that you can impute on that individual, and not only him, but then he'll have those teammates. So that definitely that was rewarding, and, and you'd be amazed at the parents that you impact as well. And so, you know, when you talk about giving back, and, you, and, and, and people always think from a monetary standpoint, but when you give yourself, I, I really think that, that uh, people benefited more from me coming back to the community and, and saying, here I am and uh, not being standoffish or in any kind of way and allowing uh, the Lord to just allow me to be a part of not only the kids' lives but also the parents' lives. Outstanding. Uh, Now, I know Alex is going to ask you some questions about uh, your playing days and so forth, and I have a question here that I guess kind of would take you back to your playing days, Uh, offensive lineman at Ole Miss and then, of course, the Bears and so forth. Could you take us inside the offensive lineman's room, meeting room or just maybe give us a story of what you feel make offensive linemen so interesting? Well, one of the biggest things is, you know, you can't be an individual in that room. And, you know, five guys essentially have to work together, but you're going you're gonna to listen to the one guy in the middle of the center. And so just having a bunch of guys, especially on the collegiate level, when you know the – your personality starts to, to blossom. You're away from your parents, getting notoriety. Now you got to you're not the wide receiver, you're not the quarterback, you're not the running back or the D tackle or the linebacker. Guys who get individual accolades, you gotta work as a unit. And so what makes it so much better to me and for me is that when you got five to ten guys that understand that process and know that you can not only determine the outcome of a game, but you can actually determine the outcome of the season. So for me, in college, we were the voice of the locker room. We were the guys that was going to get it done in the weight room, done on the field. And we knew the offense could not work without us. And when the Bears drafted me, man, I couldn't have been in a better situation with the guys that was there, like Olin Krutz and uh, uh, James Big Cat Williams. Those two guys were like, vets for me, and they were kind of like my, I was kind of like their understudy going in, and they were willing to share those opportunities and the things that they learned. I'd never played center before. Uh, I was an All-American at guard. I was an All-American at tackle in the SEC, but when I got to Chicago, they asked me if I snapped. Well, never snapped the football before, get, in the, get on the practice field, and you got a guy like Olin Cruz that's seen the mistake that he didn't say, well, you're a rookie. We're just going to let you fail. He took me and he showed me exactly how to get it done. And from that point forward, I can teach any kid how to snap a football, understand the depth of the linebacker, understand the change in the defensive backfield, which makes us change. So it's just so such an inner working in the offensive line. Like you got two tackles, two guards in the center, but you got one unit that has to work because if one guy mess up, nothing works. I didn't want to get into a big rant, but it's, just, it's fascinating to me how that group determined the outcome of a football game offensively. And if the quarterback is having a bad day, being the leader of the team, then week in and week out, then your team falls apart. And that's why I, I love offensive line unit. I want you to take us, Terrence, down that memory lane. Um, most people say Super Bowl is just another game, but I just think it's, it's those talking heads that have never been a part of it. You have. 
in 2006, right. the Bears went to the Super Bowl. You were you were a part of that team. Did you know that you had a special group that could go far that season? Uh, well, when you look at the type of defense we had uh, that season in 06, those guys uh, scored just as many points as the offense. You know, Nathan Basher, uh, Mike Brown, Peanut Tillman, uh, those just the the DBs. Uh, you go to the linebackers like Brian Erlacher, uh Lance Briggs, Hunter Hillemeyer. Then you go to the D-line. I mean, it's such a vivid, man. It's been, you're talking about 14 years, and I can call these guys' names out. Tommy Harris, Alex Brown, uh, Israel Adonage, Alawale Agunier. Those guys were so special on the defense. Uh, when we struggled as an, as an offense, uh, they would come out and say, just give a, get, get a 10 points. And you saw those guys. And one one game that stands out that that's memorable to me is the game that I I had no idea we were going to win because we was playing so bad offensively. And the defense at halftime, uh, Erlacher and Mike Brown was like, "Guys, y'all just get up ten points. We'll do the rest." And that was the uh, Arizona Cardinals game. Those guys went out, man. You talking about scored fourteen points there. And we ended up winning that ball game, and you know the tone was just set for the season, man. And we practiced with intensity, man. Guys would get into scuffles because they knew we knew of their defense. They were going to practice hard, and they was going to be relentless. And you're talking about you see that happening. You see that happening. Everybody can, you know, defenses win championships in my book. Being an offensive lineman, and you going against defensive tackles that can get the job done on Sunday and you battling those guys and you know their heart and how hard they work throughout the week. And it's amazing because there was no doubt in my mind whether or not the, the 2006 Chicago Bears would be playing in the Super Bowl that season. And it's based on how our defense was. I'm not taking away from our offense because we, we were able to score those 10 points. But to see that defense and how it came together under um, Ron Rivera, amazing, you know. And uh, that, that weekend – those two weeks preparing for the uh, Super Bowl, people only people that have ever stayed that, that game is just another game is those, like you said, that never experienced the week leading up to it. And the heart and determination in those guys when when you're practicing. You know, it's a minimal type of practice, but and then if you're a pro, you know how to do it in three steps so hard that you think you're trying to kill each other, but, you know, you're just going to work and it's over. It's, it's for an instant, then it's over. And then on game day, man, the NFL, the media, the fans, man, they make it such an experience for the players on the football field that you 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 stay in tune, you stay intent throughout the entire time. Even at our lows, Devin Hester comes out, he has a big kick return. Uh, and so we knew that was going to be gone because they weren't going to kick the ball to him again. And then uh, we're running the ball well, but then all of a sudden that defense get demoralized with in- injuries at the two spots that you never want to see, and that's the uh, two cornerbacks got injured, Peanut Tillman and Nathan Basher. So you got two rookies going against uh, Harris and Wayne with Peyton throwing the ball. That in itself is uh, a catastrophe. Uh, those guys are really good, really talented, and uh, you know the outcome. <laughs> but I mean, you see how vivid the 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 game is in my mind after 14 years, man. It's just huge experience, man. Can't can't do nothing but give God glory for so many guys don't get a chance to ever experience it. And I know we lost. Can't explain the feeling, man. But it was amazing. Bears have had a lot of great linebackers through the years, but Brian Urlacher was the heart and soul of that team when you were a part of it. Can you share with us your your favorite Brian Urlacher story? Well, one thing people miss about Brian, man, I know he's an animal on the football field, and he, he's done some really good things in the community, man, but, but he's such a he's such a down-to-earth individual, you know. Mm-hmm. And all those guys, you know, we're talking about Brian, but Roosevelt Colvin, before he was traded to the uh, New England Patriots and uh, – Lance Briggs, like, you can to me you don't have, you can't have that season without Brian and Lance and how those guys complemented each other and, and Hunter uh, Hillemeyer. They you don't have the season that we had um, without those two. But Brian is such a giving 
teammate, man, and uh, he would interact in the locker room and those special qualities. And you're talking about the old line would always work out on Tuesday morning with their early. He'd be in there with the uh, strength and conditioning coach on Tuesday morning himself. So he was a true pro. Speed out of this world for for a linebacker. You talking about a guy that big and tall that can run that fast and and jump that high. We've all seen the him covering the middle and some of they think they're going to throw the ball over his head and jump up and catch it. And he, you, 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 I mean, he gave us such good opportunity, such good field position at times, man. And and I don't just say I'm not just saying this because I'm a teammate of his. A lot of guys across the league and, and with uh, Belak out there, they'll, they'll tell you the guy was just a special guy, and not just as a football player, but like most elite guys in the NFL, they're giving and they're giving in the locker room as well. And those are some, more, some of my most uh, memorable uh, things about him and playing games in the locker room, and he jumped right in, just like the rest of us big kids before we go out to practice, you know, and uh, those moments that we shared in that locker room were special. You played in the NFL for a while, and you know the toll that it takes on your body. When DK was younger, did you want him to follow in your footsteps, or did you want him to choose another sport? No, any time that you got, you know, God bless you with a son that has any type of ability, I'm never going to tell a kid, you know, or cheat a kid out of uh, the experiences of being a, being a teammate, being in the locker room with guys and being coached by by people that can influence their lives. And so it was a no-brainer for me the whole time. If Caleb wanted to play, then it would be at a, a specific time that he would start. That was a, that was the only thing that I always told him. I'm always going to wait till you're – you'll have to wait till you're 12 years old before you can play. And that was simply because – I didn't play until I was 12 years old, so I wasn't influenced by anybody else other than the coaches I had at my middle school, my high school, college, and in the NFL. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't privy to the community teams where this dad is coaching, this guy come off the street and he can coach, and so I wasn't influenced by anything else other than football coaches who had played and who had experienced the game. You get those bad images if you don't have the kids wanting to quit early. Um, both of us, all of us know that there's anything you're doing in life, there are consequences to it. You got, you can break your leg walking down the street. People fall all the time in convenience stores and hurt themselves. And so I never thought one second to take that, those opportunities, those memories away from any of my children, uh, because it's such a special time of, of growth, learning, uh, and wisdom gaining, uh, opportunities for that. So I never thought to, uh, not let them play. Former Bears offensive lineman Terrence Metcalf is with us right now. I'm sure that your son was bigger and stronger than the rest of the kids his age. Did he have aspirations to become an offensive lineman like you? And how did he transition to wide receiver? Well, he was actually a running back in the in earlier part of him playing. He wasn't really a, a big kid, but he could run fast and he was really strong. And so those those two things – uh, those attributes, man, just stood out for him when we first started playing. Uh, he played corner in peewee and, and running back. He was faster than most kids he was out there with, and he was strong. He had learned early how to, you know, manage his body and how to control his body. And so the transition wasn't hard for him because he went from sixth grade as a running back and uh, corner to seventh grade as a corner wide receiver in Oxford, Mississippi, where the community really, like, fed into the kids. And so there were opportunities where um, you got all these coaches, all these guys, the former uh, football players, either on the college uh, level or the high school level, they had a knowledge of football. They were taking signals from the sideline, understanding what cover two, cover three, cover four was, and that was impressive to me. And so I, I just felt like we were in a great place, a great state for kids to learn that they're going to play the game, they're going to have to learn how to play it and play it physical and with knowledge. And so it wasn't a transition for him at all. It was just learning the, the skills and continue. God had to do his work first in the development of the body with the height and the muscles, but he really put in the work. In. Did he work out with you uh, when you were still in the NFL? Did he work out with you when he was younger? He worked out himself. Uh, we 
did some training at home early, and then we transitioned away from free weights to uh, resistance band. We moved to Mississippi in 2009, just as he was turning 12 years old, and that's when we really went to work on the free weights and plyometrics and uh, different uh, other forms of uh, muscle, I guess, contortion and uh, development of his body. Did DK choose Old Miss because you went there? Did you have an influence over his decision? Tell me about that. How did he become a rebel? In the recruiting process, man, you know, I I, I did all my recruiting stuff myself. Uh, my mom raised all five of us herself. Uh, coaches influenced me more during my recruiting process, so me and my wife wanted to make sure that we were there when DeKalen went on visit, when he had a meeting with coaches so that they would manipulate him and not in a bad way, but you know how people can make you feel like that you're their best friends and make you feel like you got to commit to us. And if you don't commit to us, then you're making the worst mistake of your life. And so I had a coach uh, by the name of Hugh Nalls, uh and Joe Panunzio at Ole Miss. Those guys basically told me this. Go take all your visits, see what's out there, but eventually you're coming back to Ole Miss. I committed to Ohio State. I committed to Alabama. And I was set on going to Alabama until – and then with those guys, and those guys kind of changed my mind because of their direction and the way that they uh, did their recruiting. They gave me the choice to go out and, and say things like, just go visit these places, and we know you'll come back and you'll play for us. And so those, that was what I used with the case. I never, we never tried to tell him, you're going to Ole Miss because we're, we're here in Oxford, and I played at Ole Miss, and I know you're going to have an opportunity. The only thing we did was, made sure we were in on those meetings and people didn't try to influence him to graduate early, things of that nature. And, you know, he he made his decision as a ninth grader. I didn't even know uh, they had offered him. He went to Ole Miss in a 707 tournament. Eventually, I mean, he he must have done well. And they offered him there first day. And then he came home and told me they offered Then the very next day, he committed, you know, and he hadn't even taken a visit. He just committed in the ninth grade there, and then other schools started offering. We took visits to places, but in, in, in the end, he he liked uh, Coach Hugh Freeze and Matt Luke, the two people that was recruiting him to come to Ole Miss, and that's what he wanted to play for. All right, Terrence, we just have a few more questions left, and we'll let you go. But uh, do you remember you, you uh, talked about – DK's um, athletic prowess, his skill, his his athletic ability, and so forth. Do you re- remember a particular time or point or a part of a game where you just saw something and said, "Wow, this kid's really got a chance"? More so th- during our ter- our training. One of the main things I always uh, coach always said to me, man, you 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 can't determine how big uh, or how fast a kid is, but you can definitely tell what type of individual that is by how, how hard they work and how dedicated they are to developing their craft. And the Kalen was seventh grade uh, when we were training in the summer. We're, we would go over to Ole Miss and we're running the stadium. We're doing drills on the field. We, and this after we've been in the weight room and we've done our box jumps, our plyometrics, and whatever we're doing for that particular day. Well, our running was very intense and it was very hot and we'd always finish – on the home side, running the side of the stadium all the way up and all the way across. And we'd come back and we'd finish it with whatever number of 110s we would have that day. And for a seventh grader to commit himself in that year, and he he, he wanted to prove to me that he was going to outdo me in all the on-the-field stuff. I, I didn't know, like, height-wise where he'd be or strength-wise, you know, where he'd end up or speed, but I knew the kid had heart. And he was willing to work his butt off, and he had the attitude of a of a pro. And so I told my wife, I said, I don't know what he can do, but I know something there. He never talked to me about going to the NFL because I didn't like, I didn't want nobody to tell me anything about going to the NFL if they didn't work like they were going to go to the NFL. So we would always talk on each level. You're in middle school. You're trying to be the best high school player. If you're in high school, you want to think like I'm, I'm going to be the best college football player. And so those are the things that Kalen just always showed me, just his heart and his willingness to work. 
And from that standpoint, I always told him, man, you, you trust God, you treat people right, and you continue to work the way you work. I mean, people can't shut the doors on you. And that's barring any injury. You know what I'm saying? Because those are things that are out of your control. But seventh grade, man, the kid just showed just an unbelievable uh, willingness to, to work, regardless of uh, what I threw at him. And I can definitely remember telling him as he was transitioning from middle school to high school, I felt like as a parent, as a dad, that you can you should be able to handle any coach in any type of training because I have felt I felt like I had pushed him hard enough to where he could do it. And man, I just continue to just see that in him every day. You know, I don't know if he hear the voice, but I'm just grateful to, that he's continued to hold on to those, those principles, the work ethics, and treating people right and trusting God and letting, letting things just unfold in his life. Well, it sounds like uh, you did a great job, and it certainly you know shows from just uh, hear, hearing the kid when he talks and how he how he plays. I mean, really more than anything else. Now, I want you to just quickly search the memory banks, going back to uh, draft day, your draft day, DK's draft day. Which one were you more nervous? I was way more nervous on his draft day because I knew how hard uh, he had worked to to get himself back healthy. You know, going to Prior to the draft and preparation for the draft, that October in the Arkansas game, he had uh, fractured his uh, C3 in his neck. He had to be released by the doctor early enough to get to start training early enough so that he could prepare himself for the combine. He healed up when the doctor gave him a six-month uh, turnaround, which wouldn't have given him time to prepare, I mean, for the combine. He healed up in three months. After the uh, Mississippi State game with, at Ole Miss, he was able to go. We were able to sit down with Matt Luke and tell him, you know, Decay was going to declare himself for the draft and he was going to get ready to head out and prepare for the uh, combine. He did that. And, uh, man, he went to work. and We didn't see him for about three months. He was determined to prepare his body, prepare his mind uh, to – to do this most <laughs> what people really don't know about the combine is such a stressful environment and to me those guys to me do an amazing job being able to go out under the, the amount of stress that they're under and perform. And so all of that happened and I think um you know with all the the I don't call it scrutiny or negativity. I just people have their opinion of me. When people were saying he couldn't run routes uh, they were talking about the injuries, and he went out. He caught the ball well at the combine. He ran a fast forty time. Uh, he ran in the routes, uh, and not just a go route. He ran the routes and did the cone drills like everybody else that was there. And just saw how that stress just came off of him in the moment when he called called us and he was talking on the phone. That was relief, and it just. You know, it went from there, man. So on draft night, I was so nervous for him because we were actually at the draft. And they didn't call his name uh, on the first day. And then the second day come around, and his name still, he's sitting there waiting. Just uh, just was kind of nerve-wracking. And so in those instances, I'm a grown man. I'm a big boy now. But that's my child. That's my son. That's my big baby. <laughs> so I wanted that for him. I wanted the moment to happen you saw the, again, another, when he broke down there, I just felt like that was another stress moment out of his life because he had heard the whole time. This guy, he had an injury prone. He can't run routes. Uh, you're bringing this guy in. You don't know what you're getting. And then the Seahawks took that chance. God bless them for it, and we're just grateful, man. You know, the stress came off me. I know the type of person. I know the work ethic. And I know they they had a quality guy. He was going to, in my mind, a an amazing program. Man, those guys does it different. It's a family environment, and they, I mean, I talk to them the way they do things in, in the Seahawks organization. Um, but I was just just blessed and relieved that the Cayman Main was called. And he's got a great quarterback, Terrence. Uh, it seems like he he's oh, yeah. in the right hands. Oh yeah, great quarterback again. Right? Like I said, from the top to the bottom. I, Meeting with the security people. I mean, they got a great security staff, you know, because they are personable people. They're not 
the norm of the NFL. And I don't know if times have shifted from my time in the league to now, but there's a different feel, a different atmosphere. It's more personable and it's more player-oriented. And then those, when you go into those facilities, it's not all about business. You can actually win and you know as a player, long as I do my job, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, and, you know, I can talk to the Kalen. I know stressful days. I know days where, and I know he's not, he doesn't have the mindset that I had. It's totally different. You know, I, I, I rarely talk to him on the show, and he's had stress in his day. He gave a young guy an opportunity to come in and not just show talent, but show the type of individual he is from a, from a mindset, from a maturity standpoint. So that's what, again, from Pete Carroll uh, all the way down to Russ uh, as the quarterback, all the way down to Shotty as the OC, man. That hats off to those guys for, for what they do and how they um, give those young guys and an opportunity to interact and to perform on the field. Well, Terrence, you've done a great job with your son. It was a pleasure you know, recounting going back to the Chicago Bears day. It was just an absolute pleasure talking to you and hearing those stories. Uh, DK is a great kid, so hats off for that, too. And uh, enjoy the ride. Um, we just did actually our last show. We talked about that draft class and how there still is a Brady six for Tom Brady. I think now there's going to be a new show called the Metcalf eight. Um, unbelievable. <laughs> we, we, we truly enjoy watching him. And again, thank you for your time. Thank you guys for having me. And we've reached that time in the show where I get to throw some darts. Well, no, really. I do take some time with, with my picks. And just uh, reviewing last week, uh, we did okay with the Cot Buffalo uh, getting three points from Seattle. That was a little bit of a surprise. I thought when the weather was as nice as it was that Seattle might, might really ring them up. But um, Buffalo really laid it on uh, Atlanta minus four. They tried to give it away at the end again, but uh, they did hold on. So those were the two winners. Uh, two losers, unfortunately. Arizona, uh, two and the Dolphins went out there and handled them. And, <laughs> wow, this one was just ugly where I did have Tampa Bay minus four for some reason. So two and two last week, three and four for the season so far. Uh, let's get into this week. Green Bay. Here's the game that sets up perfectly for them. They they get the they get Jacksonville at home. According to Bovada, they are a 13 point favorite, which I don't like laying double digits. I typically like, would prefer to go with dogs, but this is a game that sets up perfectly for them. Aaron Rodgers is great at home. He's great against teams that aren't very good, and Jacksonville is not. I'm just going to go ahead. I'm, I'm going to wing it. I'm going to go with uh, Green Bay minus 13. Next one is. Well, this might be the ugly game of the week, but the Bears are getting three at home against Minnesota. Minnesota's coming out riding high. Seemingly, this should be a blowout for Minnesota's favor. But at home, Monday night, the Bears, again, seemingly cannot score any points. Some way, somehow, that's going to be a cover. Chicago plus three. Next game is Miami, Tua. Wow, I mean, he looked really good against Arizona. Didn't, like, carry the game, but he did everything he needed to do, made every play that he needed to make to win that game. The defense did their thing when they had to, and they won on the road. So you got to give it to them. And this one, again, looks like Bovada's got Miami minus 2.5, okay, over the Chargers, which you would think that line should be much bigger feel like I might be falling into a trap here, but I'm going to stick with the Dolphins, minus two and a half. And then finally, Arizona. I'm going to get Arizona right one of these one of these weeks. So they're only giving, giving two to Buffalo. Buffalo, again, we, I've talked about this the last two weeks, these cross-country trips. Buffalo looked great last week, but it was against their very poor Seattle defense. Arizona's defense isn't much better, but they're playing at home. Kyler will do his thing. Arizona minus two over Buffalo. There you have it. Alex, have at it. I hope you're going to go 4-0. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're going to have a perfect week. And, by the way, I wanted to say I know nothing. I mean, Brian Flores was right to make the switch and, and get Tua in there. Now, he struggled during the first game, but they won. And during the second game, he just he looked like the quarterback that 
everyone thought that he might be when they picked him number five overall. So I give that coaching staff credit for making that switch, for knowing their team, and for realizing that Tua was ready. Absolutely, and Flores is looking like there's you know the the, shine, the shining branch off of that uh, Belichick tree. He's going to be hold, he's going to be carrying the flag for the Belichick tree because it doesn't seem like any of the other guys. Although jury still at Joe Judge, I don't know. Giants play pretty hard every week. Uh, I was really tempted to take them plus some points, but uh, those are the picks, gang. We're going to get out of here. Thanks again to Terrence uh, Metcalf for, for joining us. He was very gracious, gave us a lot of great information, not just on his career, but also his son, DeKalen. I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, that's going to do it for this week. Pros like us. I'm Lou. He's Alex. Peace!